Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Europaltro. Hello. Got a couple of outstanding items in the mailbag before we get to today's club business. One of them is a tweet from Mike Scott, who asks, What happened to your promised discussion on the Doctor series? I see ITV3 are currently wheeling out Doctor in the house from the top. Now, we will get to the Doctor series at some point. I think we've done bits and pieces of research, haven't we? We've had a couple of sort of trial ones, but it's certainly still on the slate. But I would draw your attention, Ocho, to... Well, I thought we'd done it. Well, so did I, but it turns out that we haven't. I found my notes. Definitely had a page full of notes. I'm guessing that the recording must have just gone badly. It must have been one of those where we just went, and then, and then, and then, and then, without really any great insights to be made or i think what we did it actually is coming back to me now i think what we did was that we tried to look at the first episode of all the different doctor series and we realized in the process of recording the podcast that that wasn't really a very good idea because we weren't getting the proper sense of the shows themselves so we decided that when we do it we'll do doctor in the house and then a little bit down the line we'll do say doctor at sea in its own right. We were also added in a conversation on Twitter, which didn't initially include ourselves, but it was discussion about Vicious and the job law on ITV. And then somebody, Darren Fewins, asked the question, what's the greatest one series sitcom ever? And then Rowan Bogginstrovia replied to that and said, maybe that's one for the sitcom club to answer. And that brings us very neatly onto today's topic. There's an Arthur C. Clarke story called The Nine Billion Names of God. And it's about some computer programmers who end up working for some monks who believe that the entire purpose of the universe is to list the nine billion names of God. And the computer programmers think, what are we going to do when the computer runs the program and the universe doesn't end? So it's like, right, let's make sure that the final printout happens after we've left. So they work it out that way and they're leaving. And as they're on their way home, they say, you know, they're probably just pasting the last name right now and then they notice the stars start to go out (laughs) that's what's happening to the sitcom club in fact that might be what's happening to the universe it may well be that the purpose of the universe is to place little bits of british generation x nostalgia well we had this series honey for tea oh what nuts hey found nuts that's not serious it's it's outside of the sitcom club it's nothing to do with us but I think it's within the last year, somebody finally posted up a routine, stand-up routine, by Roy J onto YouTube. Yes, that's right. Not yes. just the Schweppes commercial, some of his actual comedy material. I'm not sure I've mentioned this a great deal on the sitcom club, but it's always been one rattling around my head, and it's only actually since we started doing the sitcom club and we got hold of a copy of the Radio Times Guide to Comedy. What was that sitcom about the cowboy theme park? It was called Apache Wells? And it's Bootle Saddles, finally able to place it. And it wasn't a massive mystery memory, but somebody very kindly gave us copies. They did indeed. And most of the first episode is on YouTube. 26 minutes. And then, yeah, what a sudden disappointment when it cuts off. And that's all there is. But yes, thank you very much indeed to the person who was able to assist us with this. I know he's listening to this particular podcast. And... Yeah, so Bootle Saddles, 1984. That's interesting because in my mind I had it 
somehow cross-fertilized with Dog Food Dan and the Carmarthen Cowboy. I didn't think they were the same show, but I was sort of under the impression that they might be on adjacent nights, that they were both on around about the same time. And this is one of those funny old sitcoms that is Free Walls, Studio Audience, VT, all looks sort of BBC One, but it actually goes on BBC Two. At half past eight. Indeed. Now, can we just check, was this Mondays? That was a traditional slot for comedies on BBC Two around about that time because it was going up against Walden Action on ITV and Panorama on BBC One. So there was a nice little oasis of levity on the second channel at that time. Yes, it was a Monday night thing, which might explain why I did see it then. Do you remember this at all? I have no recollection of this at all. Have you ever heard anybody mention it before? No, not at all. And it's an oddity, isn't it? Because it's one of those shows that's just sort of fallen off the face of the earth. I'm pretty sure any time it has been mentioned, it's like, oh, yeah, it was rubbish, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Cowboys in Lancashire. Let's get your opinion on this first. I really enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. Again, I think there's a bit of a spats effect going on there with the just the overall setup and what have you. But it's a very engaging little show. I like the fact that certain cliches and certain personality traits are sidestepped. It would be really easy, for example, to have Kenneth Cope's character just be the, the constant buffoon and be useless at everything that he does and so on. Or, for example, have the Wivenshaw kid constantly sort of playing up his old age and what have you. And even though there's bits and pieces of that with the characters, they've all got skills, they've all got talents. It doesn't feel like a two-dimensional thing. First of all, we need to put this in some sort of context. We need to explain exactly what we're talking about here. The names Ray Mansell and Paul Ben don't mean much to me. They're the writers of this thing. Because Ray Mansell's background, according to his IMDb page, is in drama. In fact, mainly soap opera united the BBC soap opera about a football team that I think is entirely lost. I think maybe a trailer exists for it. At Crossroads, Harriet's Back in Town, which I think was a daytime show. And I might not say any more about that because I might be thinking of a completely different daytime show that I've accidentally attached that title to. And a few episodes of Emmerdale and then Bootle Saddles. And as far as Paul Ben, co-writer, is concerned, it's just Bootle Saddles, according to IMDb, anyway. And this is something that does sort of happen with IMDb quite often when it is people who are not particularly known for either their television or film work. It might be that they're well-known in other areas, like novels, for example. Sometimes, yeah, they just show up for that one thing, and, and there it is. So sorry that we've got so little information about the writers in this case. The thing about Romancel writing a lot of soap operas would probably explain one thing about this. This has got an unusually tight continuity for a show that's not really... It's not really a serial, is it? Looked at from the outside, it looks fairly traditional. And yet it's very careful. Episode 3's plot arises out of something that happens in episode 2. Somebody falls off... A, well, somebody falls off a roof all the time in every episode, I think. They've got their arm in a sling in the next episode. It's, it's very unusual how carefully made this is. Yes, I mean, it's, it does have continuity running through it. It's not as if every episode is completely standalone. But... If you do happen to wander in episode three or four, then you're not going to be completely lost. And of course, 
to set the scene for us, we have that lovely Ronnie Hazelhurst theme tune. Oh, boy. He must have had fun writing yeah. that. <laughs> that is a killer theme tune, and it's dead straight. The opening titles are dead straight. After a while, you can identify which episodes the stills have been taken from. But it's black and white stills of the guys doing their cowboy thing. But that theme is completely straight, unlike its namesake, Blazing Saddles. Do you know the story about the Blazing Saddles theme? I do not. Because the great thing about that is that it's, it's only faintly ridiculous. He made his Blazing Saddle a torch to light the way. It's a tortured metaphor. It's funny if you think about it, but you can let it glide past. Quite a few Mel Brooks songs work in a completely different way from the rest of his comedy. They're just on the other side of silly, and there's a plausibility about them. So the song's written, I can't remember the name of the person he normally did music with, but anyway, the theme song is written and they decide they want somebody who can sound like Frankie Lane. So they put out an advert, wanted Frankie Lane type to sing theme tune, and Frankie Lane gets in touch. <laughs> And he comes in and he sings it, gives it his all. And Mel Brooks is, on the one hand, delighted, but on the other hand, a bit ashamed. Because as far as he can tell, Frankie does not know that this is a comedy. And he's singing it like he believes every single word of it. I'm presuming that somebody must have clued in Count Basie <laughs> before his appearance, because otherwise that would have been staggering. So back to Bootle. So, okay, so let's explain what we're talking about. Well, every episode starts off playing the cliches of the Western film reasonably straight. And then the whole twist is really... There's only one joke in the first episode, and yet I laugh at it every single time. Which is, somebody is pretending to be a cowboy, pretending to be a man who does what a man has to do. One of those lone heroes of the Old West... And then they just do something that's that reveals it's they're working class Lancastrians and it falls short of the dream. So we start and there is Kenneth Cope smoking a cigarillo. He's got his cowboy boots on, his spurs, and he's standing on a train platform. And we should already know something's wrong because the platform is made of stone. It's not wooden decking. The episode title comes up, Apache Wells, Lancashire. And we see it's one of those grotty old British rail... 1980s trains he's waiting for because he's waiting for the guests to come to his new it's not really a theme park it's a theme campsite what's been built is the replica of an old western town i don't know if it's an exact apache wells is a real place in arizona and i really at some point need to go there and get loads of postcards but it's a replica of an old western town and behind the frontages apart from maybe at least one exception we know of, maybe one or two, behind these fronts are caravans that the guests stay in. It's it's a place to have theme holidays. As an idea, I quite like it. There must be something in the real world slightly akin to it. Okay, leaving aside the caravans for a moment, just in terms of the basic idea, have you not got something similar to this at your local park, i.e. Disneyland? Frontierland! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes, Frontierland, got... yeah. Apache Wells has got the edge on Frontierland. Because when you go into Frontierland, you look on the left-hand side and there's wooden decking and there's general store and there's the kind of, what does he call it? Not a music hall. 
The Golden Horseshoe. That's what it's called, the Golden Horseshoe. And I've been there when they've put on shows with dancing girls and lots of feathers. Yeah, on the right-hand side, there's a shooting range. But right in front of you is a river with a big steamboat on it. You can't really get lost in the Western myth. The entrance of Frontierland, you can see New Orleans Square. So it's like, right, so I've, I've got the Old West, but then right in my eye, I've got a little simulacrum of New Orleans and old southern riverboats going up the Mississippi. It's not quite the same. Don't get me started on Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland is a dump. <laughs> what is Tomorrowland? It was the futuristic land, but the, the future is cancelled. We're living after the end of history, remember? (laughs) (laughs) It used to be, this is what we will live like in the future, futuristic buildings, and now it's like, oh, there's a Star Wars ride, and there's a Buzz Lightyear ride, and there's a track for a ride that hasn't been used in about 20 years. Big, rusty, dusty, leaf-covered track running through the damn thing. So it really is like, oh, future dreams have collapsed and this is the graveyard of the future. They need to put Kenneth Cope in charge. That's the thing about this. There's a really strong premise for this one gag that works every time. Really, all it is, is it's the dream and the reality and the amusement when those things come into friction. You know, I talked before about US, UK, UK, US sitcom translations. And some of them just won't work. There's a reason that the rear guard... Well, there might be many reasons why the rear guard, the US version of Dad's Army, didn't take off. But one thing that we can definitely identify as being missing from that is the genuine sense of immediate peril. At least in those early episodes of Dad's Army, we're talking about people who might realistically be invaded by the Germans. And it gives a little kick. I know I've, I've actually seen people who said they were quite scared by the end credits of Dad's Army because it was old men in a war zone. I remember having a talk with somebody who found the, the Fosters quite amusing. They thought it was rather gauche, the, the British version of Good Times. And they asked, well, what about a British version of Happy Days? And it's like a British version of Happy Days would be very, very different. It, wouldn't, it would <laughs> not be Happy Days. Because I said, in Britain, the 1950s were partially the 1950s, but in some ways they were also the 1930s from an American point of view. It was a country that had bankrupted itself. Okay, differently, but it was a time of austerity. Just this evening, actually, BBC Parliament's been rerunning the 55 election, and there was discussion within that programme about the long-term impact of rationing. And this is 10 years after VE Day. So, yeah, a British Happy Days. I mean, well, you have to change the title for a start. Then just continue from then on in. But one thing I said is like the Fonz. Okay, the Fonz in Wisconsin in his leather jacket, his white T-shirt and his jeans, greasy hair. The Fonz is cool. In the UK, there would be something slightly melancholy about the Fonz. The leather jacket and the white T-shirt. And the jeans in Britain, the authentic rock and roll British thing would be a teddy boy. And teddy boy's a bit more frightening, a bit more comparable with, I know they come from an earlier point, the Pachucos in Southern California and parts of Mexico. Zoot suit riots and all that kind of stuff. But if you're just going to have a British character in a 1950s set British sitcom, it's like you're pretending to be somebody you're not and we all know you're not who you think you are. 
because this is not a British culture you've bought into. And there's a lot of that in Bootle Saddles. You couldn't really do an American version of Bootle Saddles because pretty much almost anywhere in America, okay, maybe parts of the East Coast, it would be a little bit gush, but there is a Wild West. Imagine trying to do Bootle Saddles set in Arizona. (laughs) This is real. (laughs) But no, here's the thing. They have something over here that has been seen in quite a few sitcoms, the Renaissance Fair, and that is something that's quite easily mockable. You must have seen an American sitcom set at a Renaissance Fair, yeah? Not that I can recall, but Are you I aware probably of have. Them? I've heard of these things, yeah. Yeah, they just kind of pretend to be faintly... Well, they say Renaissance Fair, but the, the bits I've always seen in sitcoms, they always look quasi-medieval. And I have been asked, like, do, do you have Renaissance Fairs in the UK? It's like, well, no, we don't need them. We had a Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> There's a King of the Hill one with the king at the Renaissance Fair is played by Alan Rickman. <laughs> it's only right at the end you get to hear Alan Rickman's Texan accent. But most of the way through, he is talking like Alan Rickman the whole time. So the strong foundation this show is built on is a bunch of dreamers and reality intrudes. But this is really not a sneering show. This is not a show about a bunch of losers. You can tell that Ray Mansell and Paul Bent are very protective of their characters. And a really interesting thing is the lack of antagonists. The only real antagonist I can think of is the policeman who's visiting to decide whether they can be awarded a liquor license. And he's just about the worst character in this. I suppose you could say that Rita is the ever-present naysayer, but still she doesn't spoil everyone's fun. Yeah, she's just a snob. There's something a bit Annie Walker-ish about her. Before we go any further, we really should list the characters that we're talking about here. So we've got Percy and Isabel James, and they have been running B and B places for the past 20 years. And with their daughter, Betty, they set up Apache Wells Langs. They've got some assistance from Cyril, is played by Robert Owen, and he is doing this voluntarily because he just loves the atmosphere. You've got Mike Walling, who is a couple of years away from appearing in Brushstrokes. And he and is Bert. Uh, yes, and he is Bert, and he is the resident stuntman. More about him <laughs> later on. We've got a couple who visit. That's Tom and Rita. And like we said, Rita is like the slightly well, snobbish. Well, Tom's not just a visitor. Tom helped build the place, and he's there on the understanding that he can he can have a caravan any times he like because he helped build this, and he does, he does a little bit of work while he's there. He offered cut price carpentry, which may or may not have been a successor to the cut price comedy show. We have our very own Chuck Cunningham, Jim Turnbull, played by Philip Goodhue, who vanishes after the first two episodes. It isn't explained vanishing, though. It is acknowledged that he went. It is. And finally, we have... The Wivenshaw kid himself, Gordon Rawlings. He was in Superman 3. Was he? Gordon Rawlings, yeah. Core, which I still haven't seen. It's the most expensive children's film foundation film ever made. (laughs) Can I just point out that I am a former resident of Wivenshaw? Oh, heck! However, I didn't hear a lot of people speak about the exploits of the Wivenshaw kid. So, unfortunately, it seems like his legacy has lost the sands of time. He is the star attraction at Apache Wells Lanks for its first week because he is known to be the fastest gunslinger in the United Kingdom and he's come out of retirement to visit the new establishment for its opening. And 
the rather nice thing about this series actually is how relatively little happens <laughs> over the course of six episodes. Because well, it takes place over a week, doesn't it? It's, a, it's six days, really. Exactly, yeah. And you don't have them lurching from one crisis to another. You don't have anything like that at all. I was reminded very much of Lester the Summer Wine. Mm-hmm. Some of the incidental music, actually. Ah, uh, well, as you heard. Very indeed. It breaks a couple of rules, really. Like I said, there's one antagonist in one episode. Beyond that, pretty much everybody in this is extremely nice. The worst person in it is Jim Turnbull. And even then, he saves the day in one episode. Jim Turnbull is, as I was saying, the idea of a British Fonz clicks his fingers expecting the daughter of the place to just pick up his bags and take them. He thinks he is so cool, and he just comes across as quite arrogant and unpleasant. And you think, oh yeah, I can see what's happening, and then he's gone. But the drama does not go with him. And the, the one that he comes into his own, he's the one who really comes up against the antagonist. I, I suppose the part of the thing is there's somebody worse than him, and it's the policeman. And the plot is resolved through a gag. That's elegant. I'm dancing around this a lot more because I want to drop far fewer spoilers because I really want this to come out on DVD and be seen yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and it, it really does deserve... And I actually think that... Whereas sometimes I'll make the odd comment on the show about, my God, can you believe that this is on DVD? I mean, sometimes the odd DVD release does genuinely surprise me. And I think, is there really a market for this? Well, apart from the fact that it's a really good little sitcom in its own right, also, surely there's a market for this. I mean, surely people who are interested in the Old West, the Wild West, whatever you want to call it, would be interested in this show, because exactly as you said at the outset, it is not a piss take. It's not nasty or mean-spirited. It's very, very nicely portrayed, and the people who have written obviously know their stuff, and the whole thing comes across as very welcoming. So I actually think the people who are interested in this kind of thing would actually really enjoy this show. You've just reminded me of somebody. I used to know a Lakota Indian. Haven't seen him in many years. If you're out there, Ted, I hope you're flourishing. I think he was maybe one quarter Lakota. I think he was a chief. I think he'd been made a chief. And he'd been made a chief at some sort of gathering in the UK because he lived in Huddersfield. I know that's the native end of things, but I'm thinking there must be similar gatherings for the cowboy end of things. And I'm not just talking about people living a dream. There must also be people who have lived it and want to keep in touch with it in the UK. It's not my thing. I'm not part of that scene, but it would not surprise me that somebody who really wanted to live that dream watched this and went, oh, God, they understand. So, yeah, let's see this get a release. I mean, let's see this. I don't think it's going to happen, but wouldn't it be lovely if it just turned up in Afternoon Classics on BBC Two, just for a week? Wouldn't that be nice? So, anyway, I'll try not to spoil it, but basically what happens is the day is saved because Jim has legal knowledge. And this legal knowledge has to come out because Bert fell off the roof of the saloon, which he does constantly. Poor old bear. There's a really great one where it's they set it up. They set it up so agonizingly, obviously. The joke is sent by second-class mail. It's so flagged. Here we are. Here's another episode. Bert is going to fall off the roof. And Bert is injured horribly without 
falling off the roof like normal. It's a beautiful kind of Hal Roach, you know, just slow down, <laughs> slow down, set it up. Here it comes here. Nope, that's a different gag. <laughs> Another thing I really like about this series, I touched on this earlier on, is that there really aren't any caricatures. Okay, Cyril is probably the closest... We need to mention he's an over-enthusiastic Welsh milkman. So Cyril is probably the closest to a sort of stereotypical sitcom character in his overall demeanour and his performance and what have you. Whereas the majority of the characters, they've got foibles and what have you, but it's not like you can just say, okay, here's this one's idiot, this one is incompetent, this one's snob and so on and so on. It's really not like that at all. So some of the things that Percy will try in the place will work and some of them won't. There's a very strange thing about how they never get the food right and nobody complains. The first night there, they're all served ham salads because Percy's wife has been serving ham salads for 25 years and she's not going to stop now. As Isabel says, the plates always come back clean and that is a... It's, it's another one. It's like we're talking about Hope It Rains. Just occasionally you see something set up. Well, this is obviously going to blow up in their faces and it just passes. There's a, a kernel of truth here as well in that, as you say, no one complains. I think that if this was happening in real life, I think that's exactly what would happen. Nobody complains on the night. Nobody makes a fuss. And then a few episodes down the line, then... In their sort of big team meeting, Percy is advised that there have been a few complaints about this, that, and the other. But that's how exactly how it would be. Quiet little whispers to the odd member of staff here or there. Nobody's going to sort of kick up a fuss and nobody wants to be the first one to make a noise. I'm sort of imagining that all of the guests at the place are rather like Norman Bird in Faulty Towers. <laughs> <laughs> sort of muttering to himself, but as soon as he's actually put in the spot and asked, is everything okay? Oh, yes, yes, thank you, everything's fine. Like Rita, let's just blow one little thing. So for good and sufficient reasons, in episode three, because of something that happened in episode two, some of the local punters are under the impression that Rita is the local professional good time girl. And the whole thing is... we. It's got to keep her from finding... Again, weirdly elegant thing. They have to keep her from finding out. They have to stop people coming into the town looking for a good time. And they do it in such a way that it actually becomes one of the camp activities. You know Heidi High better, actually. Is there any weird comparison here with Heidi High? They're all living in a camp with activities. I don't actually know Heidi High all that well, but I'm not I'm not thinking of Heidi anything... High, there's your British happy days. Well, I suppose, yes. There's nothing I can think of straight off the top of my head as far as a comparison with Heidi High for that. But Rita never finds out. Again, and we keep seeing fuses that never get lit, and it still works. She has suspicions, but she's not confronted with it. They make sure they don't let her see the newspaper, for example. Oh, do you recognise Tom Henderson, John Normington? I do, but where, sh where should he I be recognising him from? He was in that Christmas episode of actually... Public Eye he watched for Drama Club. The gentleman of quiet habits who's watching the wrestling and then gets beaten up by Tony Melody. Oh, Sam Self. Oh, right. Okay. Blimey. Now, outside on the wider internet, he's more well known for being a villain in a famous Doctor Who story in which he misunderstood the script. People compare the story to a Jacobean tragedy. And one of the things they point to is a character who breaks the fourth wall. 
and it was all John Normington not understanding what the script was asking of him. He was supposed to just kind of like soliloquize to himself, supposed to mention how the situation was going. He just looked right down the camera. One thing that occurs to me that does kind of make Jesse, Percy, as he was called by his parents, but Jesse James, there's just one thing that makes him a bit more of a loser than he is in the rest of it. His collection, what does he have? A bottle that held pills that were prescribed by Doc Holliday. <laughs> yeah. And a thread from Wyatt, and he all got them from the same guy. There's a bee, an authentic <laughs> bean from the old west. I feel bad for Percy then. Yeah, but ever, yeah. again, everybody uh, else believes him. Nobody looks at one another going, "Oh, we got a right one here." I'd like to just put on record. I don't think this is a spot at all. So I'd like to put this on record, but also invite other instances. If anybody is aware of another instance of this, please let us know. But I'm going to suggest that this is the only sitcom that has ever had a gag involving channel television. I don't remember that one. What? (laughs) Right. So when Bert is talking about his decision to become a stuntman, he says that he was previously made redundant from his old work that involved toilet rolls. And he's explaining to the Wivenshaw kid about how he decided, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to live the dream. And he, he says that in advertising his availability, he wrote to all the big companies, MGM, Warner Brothers, Channel Television. It doesn't get any response from the audience at all. It just... I missed that. Yeah, I'll, I'll point it out later on. You can you can hear it. But I'm going to suggest that that is the first, last, and only occasion in which channel television has been a line, a gag, in a sitcom. But if you know of any others at all, tweet us at the Sitcom Club. If you know that maybe Del Boy has made reference to Oscar Puffin <laughs> previously, for example, then tell us. But I'm going to say that that's a one-off. I still think Mad Men should have ended with Don Draper meeting Major Bennis of Bennis and Milbrook <laughs> and Fly Price and Clemens Coast Road. <laughs> we need to start comparing this to other shows because there's not many gags for us to unpack. For instance, Jesse is asked for a glass of red eye. There is, they haven't got their liquor license yet, so he has to have a glass of orange eye. Very prominent uh, product placement <laughs> for Just Juice, <laughs> I notice. But the whole thing, taking the old thing of sliding the glass across the bar, and it's caught by the hero, and this it's, they slide across a carton of Just Juice. This won't do. This won't do at all. Can't open it. Slide across a pair of scissors across the bar. <laughs> that, that really is the main joke of Buckle Saddles. Well, I'm wondering, episode three is the one that starts, I think it has like possibly the longest stretch from beginning to pull back and reveal. We actually have lots of the characters in the Western dress. They're all in the saloon. The saloon is the main set of the thing. It's where most of the talking happens. I'd be curious to know, actually, about the location. Even when it's obviously fronts, did they really build all those fronts just for the sitcom? Bear in mind, this is 1984. This is when they spent money on television. Fair enough. Yes, yes, we've got millions and millions of viewers, even on BBC Two. It's a couple of years before Stanley Baxter was cancelled for the second time. So, yeah. That seems to be one of the longest stretches of scenes where everybody's in the saloon, in their Western dress. There isn't any Rita who just refuses to take part in proceedings and just comes in dressed like a middle-aged wannabe middle-class woman of 1984 
Because it seems like the start of every episode wants to maybe lull the audience into a false sense of security. Start with a shot. Episode one, we start with cowboy boots on the train platform. What are the what are the setups? They just start with a standard setup and then pull back and reveal, yeah, they're all still working class northerners. Well, we've got the pink flamingo incident. Oh yes. The one line I've remembered from this show for the last thirty one years was it's supposed to be Apache Wells, not Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> so there's not a lot to be said about it comedically. There's more to be said about plot, and I don't want to talk about plot too much. Even though that ending, it has an ending. It has a very acknowledged ending. Before I get on to one guest appearance, are we going to discuss the fact that someone who we've mentioned many a time on the sitcom club previously does appear in the final episode of this? Oh yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. But before we get to himself, earlier on we've got the mayor coming in to officially open Apache Wells, and he is the health inspector from Forty Towers. But episode two even goes slightly further with that. So we have Jim. He's got his kind of man with no name poncho on. Well, that was another great little weird little joke. Somebody mentions the man with no name and so it goes, he's called Clint Eastwood. <laughs> so anyway, Jim's coming into the saloon dressed up like the man with no name. He's going to have they come. What? And he reaches onto the bar in front of him and turns off the incidental music. Yes. Speaking of incidental music, of course, in the first episode, when Percy is demonstrating his whip-cracking skills, incidental music from Not Nine O'Clock News. Oh, is that what you know? It you know it reminded me of uh, Dumb Animals from The Goodies, Kit and Kong. Well, I think it is actually a test card piece, isn't it? Oh, right. I think that's where it comes from. I need to look into that. Let's talk about the kid. Spoilers. I'm going to tell you what happens right at the end. But almost at the end, it tells you that this was really the kid's story. I watched this the same week that Mad Men finished. I'm, I'm going to say that episode six of Bootle Saddles was the best season finale I watched all week. <laughs> <laughs> that last shot of the kid was better than that last shot of Don Draper. Can I just check? Because I know that you posted that on Facebook, but you didn't make reference to the fact that you're talking about Bootle Saddles. How many people actually understood what you were talking about? I'm not sure. <laughs> and nobody asked. <laughs> so I think they must have all known. I think, I think that's a fair presumption. Yeah. So the kid, the whole thing is he's the fastest gun west of the Pennines. The obvious joke is because he's an old man, he's got a hearing aid. The obvious thing would be to have him very fast by Apache Well standards, but actually be pretty pathetic and broken down. He's not. Yeah. Through editing tricks, he's as fast as people say. He's fast enough to stop somebody clapping their hands. Again, I really like that. I think that that's something where, maybe I'm generalising here, but I suspect that if this sitcom was made in 2015, then that's exactly the road that they would have taken. That he would be broken down and he would be you might if you were really really lucky on a good day you might get him just sort of showing a little bit of the old magic but otherwise yeah he's past it but no not at all he's everything that he's billed as from the moment that he arrives at this train station nobody says at any point who's the Wiffenshaw kid what do you mean they all know who he is because this publication Gunslinger Monthly uh, which gets yes. referenced quite often. They know his history and his background and the stories and so on. 
So there's really only two ways that break through this impression of him as a great gunslinger. One, he is a, I keep saying this, most incredible working class northern man. He's the one who, <laughs> his only complaint about his just juice was he needed something to open the curtain. And he loves crisps. Very subtle little thing, but there is, there's a bit where they have to have a barricade. They're all there with their guns full of blanks. It'd be a difficult thing to make now because I'm assuming that gun laws have got tighter and tighter since 1984. Some of those pieces they carry probably be illegal now, yeah? Mm. Yes, I suspect so. But they're all there and the kid is sitting behind the barricade and he's just, like eating a pack of quavers. It just keeps cropping up occasionally. <laughs> just a tiny thing because he's sitting in the right kind of chair. He's relaxed. He looks like... The Western hero, just that one thing. Can we think of any shows that are similar but wrong, that do this completely wrong? I don't know. I've got a feeling that somewhere out there, there are tons of British TV shows about dreamers in societies. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of one. And I'm citing this because I think that you've previously mentioned it, actually. It's not a British sitcom, it's an American one, and in fact, it is the most popular sitcom on the planet right now, The Big Bang Theory. Look at the difference between, okay, you've got the little foible, for example, where Percy, you know, clearly has been hoodwinked into buying all this false merchandise. Am I right in thinking that, for example, that's the kind of gag that you get again and again and again in something like The Big Bang Theory? It's something I keep seeing referenced because... I like to keep up with what's happening in the comic book world. Well, no, I don't really like it. It depresses me, but I have to anyway. Everything's going to hell. All right, then. So let's say, for example, that if there are characters in that show who are really, really into their comic books, every single reference to the fact that they like comic books is going to be a knock on them. And at no point is... Well, as far as I know, Big Bang Theory has divided opinion sharply. Some people thinking it is an offensive stereotype and some people saying oh finally they've made a show for us because you know geeks they're easy to please you mentioned rob liefeld a couple of times and eating out of your hand look i'm going to protect people from lancashire i want to pretend to be cowboys i'm not protecting geeks they've ruined culture forever <laughs> okay so let's let's try and find a more succinct comparison so we're talking about british share up my copies of multiversity sorry you were saying right so a british sitcom then that gets this kind of thing entirely wrong. Okay, now let's think about this. Because a lot of the, right, the things I can point to is its predecessors, like Last of the Summer Wine. But then I'm thinking like Coronation Street, which of course Gordon Rawlings and Kenneth Cope were in in the 60s. As said, Rita, played by Shirley Stelfox, she's an Annie Walkerish kind of northern working class social climbing snob who hasn't climbed very far. And Ray Mansell wrote for Emmerdale, not seen any of his episodes, but he's got a certain voice. And you know what? Do characters get treated that badly in soap operas as opposed to sitcoms? That's a good point. I suspect... If you think of Roy in Coronation Street, who I think was introduced as the creepy... And I use this as a word meaning of a fairly accurate portrayal. Not using this word lightly, but he was portrayed as creepy and autistic. And that seems to happen with quite a few soap characters, he eventually becomes important and he's an important part of the community and we want to know what happens to him and we care about him. Quite a few characters, I'm thinking 
Somebody told me about, if you remember, we're going way, way back, uh, Raquel in Coronation Street was originally a bit more of a harsh man-stealing character and then became the lovable dizzy blonde. Characters soften in soap operas. They become more cared for. Well, I'll give you an example from sitcom, although it didn't actually start as a sitcom. Rapsy Nesbitt, when his character began a naked video in the sketch series. Everything was pretty much as it became in the sitcom, except for one detail, and that was whenever you saw Mary, Elaine C. Smith, more often than not, she had a black eye. That you just wouldn't ah. get. You would not get that now in in any kind of you know sitcom drama or otherwise, in which we're supposed to be relatively sympathetic to the main character. Thank you, thank you. You've reminded me of what was scratching in the back of my mind when I was making this point about characters in soap operas softening. And maybe they do in sitcoms. Again, TV tropes have that thing, Flandersization, where a character in a sitcom becomes their most obvious tropes. But that can actually make them bigger losers, more to be sneered at. I'm not sure it happens. Well, it doesn't happen in the soap operas I watch, maybe, or watched. Last few weeks been going through the Coronation Street 1960s box set. Stan Ogden and Stan and Hilda Ogden and the Disappearing Children. Initially, it's mentioned that Stan and Hilda had two children who were taken into care because Stan beat them when he was drunk. And by the time that Stan is embedded in the storyline of Coronation Street, they can't be brought into it. Because that's not Stan. Stan is, don't laugh, a prototypical Homer Simpson. <laughs> I told you not to laugh. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So eventually we find out that the two of the Ogden's children we have seen, who were not taken into care, it's, oh, they're the only two children they ever had. Hilda mentions she's only had two children. Because Stan has become softened to that extent. Well, Bootle Saddles really starts out that everybody's pre-softened. Yes. Another yeah. thing I want to mention, I don't think, it's not a spoiler to mention things that don't happen. They go out for a night under the stars, and for some reason, most of the people staying there, what are they, what are they called? They get a group who stay there. It's, it's kind of a hand-waved explanation, which is how can this place really survive when there appear to be only six people staying there? And <laughs> I'm not sure any of them are paying guests. So there is a coach party that goes to stay there for a bit, and they're just extras. And they're the ones who complain. You said the complaints come afterwards. They're the ones who complain that there aren't enough activities. But when it comes to going out for a night under the stars, none of them come with them. So you don't have to take all the extras on location. Clever. <laughs> and Cyril gets a bunch of wood for the campfire. And I was so sure that they were going to wake up in the morning surrounded by security guards. <laughs> And Cyril had nicked a bunch of fence posts off Ministry of Defence property or something like It didn't happen. They had a lovely night. <laughs> I think we're doing probably a pretty poor job of selling this. Come and watch this show with very little in the way of conflict and all the characters are nice to each other. But that's part of the reason why I enjoy it. Because it sounds like a strange thing to say about a sitcom about a Wild West caravan park. But it actually feels very real. The, the way that the characters interact and the way that the, the guests interact with the staff and so on, it all sort of feels exactly like it would be. 
I mentioned that place in Cornwall earlier on. Now, if you were to go and visit that place when it was open, I've got a funny feeling that it wouldn't actually be all that different from the way that things are portrayed in Little Saddles. Nobody's over the top. You don't get conflict out of little things. You don't have dramas occurring all the time. You don't have them lurch from crisis to crisis. It's just a nice ongoing situation, just watching the place develop and seeing how they adapt in the first week's business. And one thing I really do like about this is the attention to detail. For example, when they have that night out, it'd be so easy to sort of gloss over something like this. But there was a scene in which they go into such detail about the logistics of the night out. So they're going to have a coach to take them there, but the coach will be unavailable the next morning because it's busy with a school run. They're all starting to think, oh, hang on a minute, we've got all that like stuff that we're going to have to take like for the campfire and all the cookery and what have you. We're going to have to bring all that back you know, on foot. And how far is it? Four miles. And they're wanting to know the precise details about the raffle and how much does the raffle cost and what are the prizes and so on. And you're not going to have any mattresses. We're actually going to be sleeping on the ground. That, that kind of thing is like, you can imagine another sitcoms that would just be like, we're going to have a night out. And then before you know it, it's there. When they are rehearsing their shoes out when the mayor's coming Bert says to Cyril during the rehearsal don't actually fire the gun because blanks cost money things like that for example that it would be really easy to just gloss over or just not acknowledge at all there's another bit of really tight continuity Bert breaks his glasses in one episode and that's it for the rest of the series they're taped <laughs> yes got the sticking plaster over the bridge <laughs> can we just mention by the way that if this show does get a DVD release, I don't think it's a spoiler, although it probably if you were to just pop this image on the cover without any context, it could slightly throw you when you actually get around seeing the episodes. But there's got to be a prominent photograph of Mike Walling as Bert as a Native American. <laughs> that like, is a great reaction when he pops up on his horse because he's arranged that they're going to have this... What's the expression for it? Revolt? Rebellion? Uprising? An attack. It's going to be an attack by angry natives and they're going to circle. They don't really have a wagon to circle. What's the name of his horse? Keith? Uh, Kenneth. Kenneth, that's... Kenneth, Kenneth the horse. Because <laughs> that's what really upsets the horse. That's what, all you can expect from a horse called Kenneth. <laughs> that's it. The horse is mad. Can you see a second series? Yes, I could, actually. I'm thinking that if you did a second series... The, the thing you then need to do is start breaking down the plots of specific westerns. There must be six famous westerns. So you do The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, that kind of storyline, somehow. You get the high noon kind of thing in episode six, but you do it a little bit more properly. I'm going to take issue with this because I'm not really a fan of the genre. Westerns. I know that a hell of a lot of people are. I know they're very popular. But my knowledge of them is next to non-existent. It could be that Brutal Saddles is absolutely chock full of very, very subtle references to Western tropes, for example. But if it is, then they're that subtle that it didn't faze me. There was nothing in there. There was never any comment where I thought, 
I'm not quite getting the joke. Like in, for example, something like Spaced, where sometimes you understand what is being referenced, sometimes you don't. If they were to start then spoofing specific situations or films and what have you, I'm not sure how I'd take to that, because I might feel that this wasn't really for me any longer. Well, the plots of Westerns seem to be so... Is archetypal the right word? So standard in many ways that I think you just accept that, right, we're going to take a dramatic plot and watch it go wrong and start watching the dramatic bits peel off and the silliness underneath. I think you could watch a parody of High Noon or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance or... I think I've named all the westerns I know there. Well, there's 40 guns, but nobody's ever seen that. I think you could sit through a parody of those stories and just pick up that this is not as dramatic as it thinks it is. You wouldn't actually have to know the films that were being referenced. I guess so. But in a way, I'm glad there isn't a second series because it ends beautifully. It is the end of somebody's story. Right, back to Mad Men. (laughs) Uh, Keith Olbermann. Do you want to explain Keith Olbermann? Keith Olbermann, sports host who then got into straightforward newscasting, political news, MSNBC, became the sort of left-wing version of Bill O'Reilly, although he'd probably be very offended by that comparison. Actually, they would both be very offended by that comparison. And eventually fell out of favour of MSNBC and is now back on Sports Talk with ESPN in the States. I was looking for tweets about the Mad Men finale and I came across his and he complained, ah, but you want your Western cliches? A Christmas Story, very famous film in the US, not so famous in the UK. There's, there's fantasies about being a Western hero in that because it's all about getting a BB gun for Christmas. He compared the finale to Mad Men to a scene in A Christmas Story. We're not going to spoil the end of Mad Men, but to give the idea... He compared his disappointment with the finale of Mad Men to a scene in A Christmas Story where little Ralph, the central character of A Christmas Story, set in the 1930s, he listens to Little Orphan Annie on the radio and they keep reading out coded messages at the end and it's all about send off for your decodering, send this many Ovaltine lids and get your decodering because Little Orphan Annie is sponsored by Ovaltine and he finally gets his decodering and he copies down the coded message. And he runs into the bathroom and he decodes the message. And the message is, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. It was an advert. <laughs> well, in our list of ending types, Bootle Saddles is, it's an acknowledged ending, but I'd say it's almost on the, the border of a defeat. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, no, Keith Oberman. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Totally lo- Right, so what he said is one of the things that he didn't like was there was nothing to tell you why the story had to end there. There's nothing that really says, right, this has to end at season seven. Why couldn't it end at season eight? Why couldn't it end at season six? Season six had a fantastic ending. He felt there wasn't really enough of an underlining sort of, this is where the story ends. Bootle Saddles ends with a decision being taken. And that's just... It. It ends with a life-changing decision being taken. It's beautiful. This is possibly slightly putting my neck on the line here. Bootle Saddles is a forgotten classic. I agree. I agree. You've probably been able to tell that this has been an unusual podcast in as much as we don't have dozens of episodes of a series to talk about. 
and also we're trying to avoid spoilers so it, it sounds and the gags are almost all variations on the same thing yeah so it, it is it's a difficult one to actually go into detail about without actually going into detail about plots and spoilers and so on but i agree it's a very very good show it should have had a much more prominent slot than it got get the hashtag going bootle saddles on dvd Yes, indeed. I mean, like I say, the first 26 or so minutes of episode one are kicking about on YouTube. That much we know. But let's actually get this released. So let's get it on digital TV or something. Get it shown on gold or drama or something like that. I mean, I suspect that some channels these days, they might be put off by the fact that show's only got six episodes. But let's be perfect for gold. Gold show series single series on a sort of weekly basis they just showed Bellamy's people just recently which is you know sort of disappeared from people's memory over the last few years and there it was turned up on Saturday night so let's do it let's give people saddles a slot and gold just have it turn up and let people discover it for themselves come on let's do this if all else fails we'll do a kickstarter <laughs> we don't know what we're talking about next week but you know what I think there's something we need to say this has been a very gentle series so far of sitcom club since we came back. In what way do you mean? Since we returned, we've looked at No Place Like Home. Cozy, middle-class, middle-aged sitcom. One series wonders of 1988, with the cozy to the point of Doll Wyatt's watchdogs. Andy Cap, about which there's not much to be said. Dog Food Den and the Carmarthen Cowboy. Which again, it's about caring for people. Caring what happens to these characters. The River, it's melancholy love story. Honey for Tea, Land of Hope and Gloria. Ho, 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 you cute Brits. Okay, we got political. Hope it rains. And it's seaside sadness. We haven't really had anything with any anger in it. And I think Bootle Saddles is just about as gentle as you can get now. So our task now is to find something that's got a, you know, it's a little bit red in tooth and claw. You didn't or... get, you didn't get the sense of, of there being real angst and vitriol in... Lollipop loves Mr. Moore? I'd forgotten that. Oh. Well, there was, but it came from me. <coughs> so that's the decision to be taken for next time. Do we go for something fiery, or do we drink our Ovaltine? I'm going to enjoy my Ovaltine, to be perfectly honest. Well, okay, let me unpack it a little bit, because I am in a certain way reacting against a certain kind of mindset that's very popular. Middle-aged people now seem to talk pretty much the same way, or maybe the ones I know, talk pretty much the same way they did in sixth form. The I love sneer has started to go grey and has not really stopped sneering. And grown-ups with eye bags and crow's feet are still doing it. The history of culture always seems to be the history of the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. I've just started re-watching Kenneth Clark's Civilization. And he's very Eurocentric, very patrician. It is a posh man talking about the glories of the kind of things that posh patrician men liked in the first half of the 20th century. I know it's made in 1969, but that's the outlook. And I think maybe some of what he says is wrong, but I think more of what he says is simply incomplete truth. 
He looks at things. He focuses on things. He he didn't know the show was going to be called Civilization when it started. I don't know what point the title got attached to it, but it was meant to be. I mean, it's described as a personal journey. I can just mention that I'm talking about Kenneth Clark Civilization in a podcast about Bootle Sound. <laughs> He's taking a very very subjective look, and when you do that, you make yourself vulnerable. And they're just I don't know. They just seemed at some point my generation and our older brothers and sisters kind of allowed a certain nastiness to get in and if you can be nasty do be nasty and an incomplete truth is treated with as much acid as an outright lie there's things he doesn't say that should be said but instead of just saying them it can, some of his things can be rebutted without being absolutely annihilated mm-hmm. we went from bland inoffensiveness being the main mode of culture because as much as we talk about we love that stuff, we didn't mention Debbie Arnold in 321. Debbie Arnold is in Bootle Saddles. And you and I, we love that stuff. But I can understand how for a while it got suffocating. There's the emergent culture and the prevailing culture. And the prevailing culture gets kind of oppressive after a while. We had a prevailing culture of bland inoffensiveness. And I think now there's a lot of prevailing culture of bland offensiveness. Satire that isn't really satire. It's not telling truth to power. It's just finding the flaw, exaggerating it, and allowing worse things to get by. Making one minor flaw look as bad as a major flaw does a service to major flaws. So that's one of the reasons the sitcom club, I think, is sometimes so gently focused. That being said, Lollipop was awful. And room service sucks. And to be honest, you've not been so good recently. (laughs) <laughs> not really pulling your weight <laughs> so you're wanting to keep drinking the Ovaltine yes but apparently next time it's going to be gentle it's going to be a big feather bed of a sitcom apparently so if somebody comes up to Mooncat says look I just have to have here all the episodes of Hardwick House now either you take them or I'm burning them Mooncat's going to say burn them because that's not what we do on Sitcom Club, apparently. Can I just uh, butt in here? I don't actually think that's what I've been saying for the previous few minutes, or indeed what you were saying just a few minutes ago. Um, there is a difference between... You want it gentle. You want it gentle. Yeah, but that's there's a difference between that and therefore I want to break into the ITV PLC archives and erase their master tapes of Hardwick House. I'm quite happy for Hardwick House to still exist as a thing. And if somebody does turn up with all the episodes, of course I'm going to bloody well watch them and review them. Oh, right, them. so, we, okay, House, right, so next time on the sitcom club, watching Mondo Carne. The bit that interests me about Hardwick House... There's is nothing that, in between. I think you'll find there is. But the Footage bit, of abattoirs or Teletubbies eating marshmallows, that's it. I, I've sat through Jean-Luc Goddard's weekend, for God's sake. I can, I can do edgy. I didn't enjoy it, but I sat through it. Anyway, right, I've decided. I've decided what we're doing next week. Going straight. We're gonna look Okay. At, we're gonna look at <laughs> We're gonna look at look at that as an example of sitcom sequels. How about that then? Because right. we haven't really touched on that as yes. an area yet. There's a lot of scope. Ah, that's fabulous. There. Yes. No, that's I like that because we've kind of agreed that certain shows are so big we can't really talk about them because everything's been said, but going straight, yes. Cool. Okay, dokie. So next week, Sitcom Club going straight. And in case you didn't know, 
I think you'll find it if you go looking for it on YouTube. There is actually a full-length version of that theme tune. Again, Ronnie Hazelhurst, but there's more to it than just appears in the episodes. It's like full-on verses and everything, and it's all Ronnie Barker who's telling the story. So, yeah, we'll see if we can sniff out a copy of that more tweet a link to it if you've got anything at all for us don't forget you can tweet us at the sitcom club we're on facebook as well and you can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com in all previous editions of the show and there's actually over 80 podcasts in the archive now you can find all of them at sitcomclub.com in the meantime on behalf of yourself Ojo, goodbye i am mooncat and this has been the sitcom club <laughs>